appreciate all of you coming. Uh, we are doing a, a panel discussion today on SDG number 11, which is about sustainable cities and communities. And I've been very grateful that our friends at Chevron have been hosting these. We've done many Chevron forums. We've done over 60 Chevron forums here at CSIS on global development. And in partnership with Chevron, we have been doing a series on the sustainable development goals, which impact both the United States and impact the rest of the world, that these are goals that are for everybody. And I think what has shocked me and impressed me is how seriously uh, global multinationals, whether it's Chevron or Walmart or Coca-Cola or big tech companies all over the world, not just in the United States, have taken on the sustainable development goals as a framework for looking at how to look at problems, how to measure progress, and how to think about their contributions to solving big, big challenges in the world. So I think that um, the, it's very appropriate that we're having this conversation about both um, sustainable cities and sustainable communities. And so uh, we've got a really great set of panelists to help us think about cities and communities both in the United States and in the developing world in line with the conversation about SDG 11. Um, and so I'm, I'm really pleased. We have my friend Sarah Lawrence from RTI. We have uh, con former Congressman Tim Penny who runs a regional development uh, organization in rural Minnesota. Uh, uh, Janet Auer. Uh, who's uh, a senior official from Chevron working on social investment issues. I'm really pleased she's here. And Dan Heimowitz, who works for the mayor of Baltimore and had a past life in Liberia. So I think folks who've crossed cities and rural, United States and international. So I think we've got the right set of people. I think I like to organize conversations around one or two questions. I think it helps us stay focused. So I think one of the questions I have asked folks is to think about what, what does it take to have successful cities and what's it take to have successful rural communities. And there, I think there's a variety of ingredients that are similar and that there's a, a number of ingredients that are necessary uh, to have successful and how do you reduce poverty and increase opportunity, increase prosperity. So my, I thought the first person I, I thought of when we were pulling this together is my friend Sarah Lawrence who has worked all over the world and has worked in rural contexts and an urban context on just these sorts of issues. Sarah, thanks for being here, please. Thank you, Dan. Always um, a great pleasure to be here. Um, I think these are uh, overwhelming issues. Um, I think they exist everywhere. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm just so pleased to see that CSIS is really forging these conversations around development issues we're facing here in the US, wherever you live, um, and then also internationally, because there's so much shared learning uh, to be had and, and uh, appreciate this forum to bring that together. Uh, as you... Um, raise these issues. I had a couple of my, a couple of reactions again based on my experience working in, in the US and internationally. One is just everywhere we go, the issues around access, um, access to information, access to jobs, access um, around the infrastructure. And I know that when I when when you laid out or when I was rereading this um, the SDG, uh, I wanted I I really think it's important for us to rethink infrastructure and rethink what infrastructure is. It's not just um, how we've thought about it for so many years, but um, and really including 
including things like digital infrastructure and other means of access, public transportation. Um, as cities grow, they're growing in such dense ways, and then also there's just disparity in how cities are growing. Um, and I think the connectivity to rural areas, and we're going to have to be honest, not all of rural America is going to grow. Some of it's going to decline. So how do we concentrate where we can grow some of those spokes but ensure that there's access everywhere? Um, one other point I wanted to make is if I had a, a magic wand, um, one, of the, one of the things I would like to do is um, create a position of authority. I don't know if it's at the state level or if it's at a, an urban level, but creating a, you know, a deputy of inclusion and development so we can be thinking about these issues um, across political boundaries and, and also be thinking about them uh, as we think about our systems and how we provide um, health, how we provide education, how we provide jobs, that these don't, that, that it's not siloed. As, uh, I just think it, the need for these to come together and be pro and, uh, problem solving across these kinds of boundaries is just, is really critical. Uh, I think in reality that'll be difficult, but I had my magic wand, so um, I took it. All right, so Sarah, just while I have you, just talk about, if I said to you, the role of mayors and the role of governors in the different, con you've worked in 20 states and you've worked in probably 15 countries. Mm -hmm. What's the role of mayors and what's the role of governors in, in, in sort of, it, what's, how do, what role do they play? I think that there's a critical role for, um, it could be mayors, probably more for mayors, uh, also for governors though, set to set a vision. Um, I feel like, uh, especially internationally, I hear more um, around a shared vision and a, and a, a goal, um, and there's a lot more energy towards meeting those uh, larger visions for prosperity. Uh, honestly, when I'm working in the U.S., I feel like we're, we're not getting that vision um, and not that consistent drumbeat of how important that vision is for our future and for development. So I think um, there, that's just critical because if we don't have... Um, if we don't have shared ideas for where we can go and we're not talking about those, there's no way to build momentum and to um, spark greater champions and leaders to help us get towards these goals. Okay, so just one more question. So, so Sarah, how, think about rural contexts where you're seeing decline. Mm -hmm. how, how, how should, if someone called you up and said, we want to help us think about how we manage a declining rural economy, what would be some of the first set of questions you would ask? Can I give answers instead of questions? You give answers. No, I'll ask questions. Um, I would want to first know, how are you investing in your people who live here? Um, so it's, it's, you know, you can never get away from education. You have to invest in, in your people. Number two, I think you have to manage for where there's growth in certain rural areas, but really you also have to manage for decline, and that's true for cities and rural areas. The footprints of how our economies um, are today have changed so much, and I think that pace of change is just uh, increasing dramatically, and um, I think we have to be very, have very honest conversations conversations about managing for growth where it's occurring, but also decline where it's occurring, and then ensuring we have connectivity and opportunities for people who are in um, both kinds of locations. Great. So Congressman Penny, I knew who you were when, when you, I knew you when you were Congressman Penny. I read about you. I'm really pleased that you're here. We miss you in Washington. I'm not sure you miss Washington, but we miss you here. <laughs> 
we really do miss you here in Washington. But you, you've done all sorts of public service. You, were, you served in the U.S. Congress uh, in, for Minnesota and really represented Minnesota very ably and, 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 and garnered a national profile in the Congress. But now you are doing a different kind of public service. Talk about the role that you're, ha you're, you're playing now and talk about how, how, do, how do the various stakeholders in rural Minnesota um, de deal with the challenges and opportunities that, that are in rural Minnesota. Sure. Uh, and I'm going to do uh, right now what I should do more often, and that's give uh, credit to any success I may have had to my former chief of staff, Steve Bosacker, <laughs> in the second <laughs> row. Uh, many of you uh, know him and work with him. The, those are critical partnerships between I, chiefs of yeah. congressional staff and members. That and, is really true. And, and he's, he's loving his current work, uh, but I've often teased him that he started working for me in Washington and then he went back and worked for Governor uh, Ventura at the state level, and then he went and was the chief of staff for R.T. Ryback, the mayor of Minneapolis. So he kind of started <laughs> at the national level and, and, uh, and came down to a more local level, and, and now he's back on the national scene and uh, doing great work. Um, I, I wanted to pick up on something yes. that, that Sarah said, um, because, um, she mentioned in, in the luncheon as well, the preparing for decline. Uh, in, in too many rural areas, that's sort of what's going on. Um, and our foundation, the Southern Minnesota Initiative Foundation, came into existence 33 years ago with five other rural foundations covering all of the non-metro counties in our state uh, to become uh, economic and community development um, uh, foundations investing in, in the future of those rural regions. But I think one of the things we as a foundation uh, um, uh, amplify to our partners within the region is that economies are not entirely local. They are regional. Uh, and, and you need to be mindful of this broader economy of which you are a part and the role you play in that. Uh, we also try to uh, remind them that they can't be what they once were in most cases, in many cases, but they can be something different if they do a couple of things. Uh, and one is to, um, <coughs> is to be honest about where, what their challenges are, but also <coughs> be optimistic about what their assets are. Uh, we have industry clusters in our part of the state, and most of our communities can build off of those clusters that are dominant in our region. Uh, we have, um, uh, we have uh, enormous natural assets in our part of the state, uh, which uh, I think are underappreciated. I've often said that southeastern Minnesota, uh, which is uh, bordered by the Minnesota River and the Mississippi River, is like the New England of the Midwest, and we often undervalue that. So uh, in our work, uh, we first of all go into communities to uh, um, model collaboration. Uh, and we can do that because we're not competing, we're, we're complementing, we're bringing something to the table. We don't have all the resources they need, but we have something of, of value, and, and that invites others to the table uh, to work in a collaborative way, and then the sum of those parts is always greater than the, than the separate contributions. Uh, the, the other thing that we uh, do, again, is, is to ask them to look at this asset-based approach to community and economic development, building on what they have, augmenting that, enhancing that, uh, as opposed to striving for something uh, that's unachievable. Um, 
when I first left Congress, another uh, rural foundation in Minnesota, the Blandon Foundation, which was a paper company uh, that, that spawned this, this wonderful foundation in northern Minnesota, uh, asked me to come and give them a talk about rural economic development. Uh, and I said, uh, here are the three myths of rural economic development. Um, the, the, the first is build it and they will come. Oh boy, you can see a lot of infrastructure investments in rural communities thinking if we just build this industrial park, woo, we're there. Uh, the, the other is I, me, mine. It's all about me. Uh, Rochester is my enemy. No, Rochester is, is a job producing uh, uh, metropolis in our region and any town within an hour's drive of Rochester is a piece of that economy and benefiting from that. Uh, and then the third is I'm from the government, I'm here to help you. That's, and and I, I know we're going to hear from the mayor's office in a bit, so I, I say that uh, a bit uh, uh, with tongue in cheek. But too often the, the government programs are so siloed and so narrow and so strictured that you can't work with them. Um, so I, I think in our work we try to be collaborative and we engage government to the, to the degree they are able to be engaged, uh, but it's sometimes the most difficult partner. But Congress, let me come back is, to is, your that questions. That isn't exactly what you asked. That's okay. <laughs> talk, talk about, we were talking earlier about champions and I, I keep thinking, well, the champion may be a mayor, the champion may be a governor, and Sarah was saying, sometimes that's not really, we were saying in the lunch, that sometimes the champions aren't necessarily a governor or mayor. Can you talk a little about where, where do champions come from in rural Minnesota? Where are the, where are the champions that, that you find? Who, who are they? Hmm. Uh, well, it, it, you know, frankly, it varies from issue to issue. And, and sometimes the champion is, is, is a nonprofit with a unique role. Huh. Um, we found this, uh, because we are a regional economic and, develop and community development foundation, uh, we're, we're, we're able to invest resources, grant-making resources, programmatic resources, even lending resources uh, in, into, in, into that space, community and economic development. Uh, but in the economic development aspect of our work, we, we increasingly were getting more and more grant requests uh, from people that were trying to grow the local foods economy uh, in their town. Yeah. Uh, we were increasingly getting loan requests from people that were trying to grow uh, a local foods business. Uh, you know, we have a lot of production agriculture in the area, corn, soybeans, large uh, pork farms, etc. cetera. Uh, but, the, but the new farming in our area is, is often local foods because on a small plot of land you can turn uh, vegetables or chickens or whatever you have in, into a marketable product. Uh, and, and so when we saw that happening, uh, we thought, we. We see some growth potential here. We've got several regional centers where demand for local foods is growing at grocery stores, restaurants, and more. Uh, we're, we're within an hour, hour and a half drive of the Twin Cities where the demand is like through the roof. Uh, how can we play a helpful role? So the first thing we did is we reached out to a group called Renewing the Countryside, which is all about sustainable agriculture. And we said, we'll give you $10,000 to do a study and an analysis of the local foods economy in southern Minnesota and where the barriers are and what could be done to overcome that. Uh, based on that study, uh, which said you know, micro-lending was a need, uh, um, uh, congregating or aggregating uh, goods so that they would uh, meet a certain level and, and therefore could meet a certain market was a need. Uh, visit, just frankly, visibility of, of the sector was a need. 
And so out of that, we pulled together, oh, it's probably 30 people that are part of this collaborative. It includes local food co-ops, it includes sustainable ag groups, it includes foundations like us uh, and, and actual producers, uh, the wine growers, others. Uh, we, we moved toward specific activities that could advance the local food sector. Uh, and one of those is an annual local foods feast festival with 100 exhibitors, 40, 50 buyers, 16, 1,700 people come to this event every year, raising visibility awareness uh, and also some contracts for some of our producers with these buyers. Uh, it also led to us creating, with nonprofit donations, a Grow a Farmer Loan Fund so we can do micro lending uh, to the local food sector for just the, the small piece of equipment they might need to take that business to the next level. So all I'm saying there is that renewing the countryside was, was the leader here, and it, and it was a nonprofit with a mission. Thank you. Janet, thanks for flying all the way from, from the Bay Area to be here. Chevron was into the SDGs before they were SDGs, when they were MDGs. Could you just spend a minute first telling us why does a company like Chevron care about the sustainable development goals? Yep. So um, thanks, thanks for having me. And um, so as he mentioned, um, we've been in conversations about SDGs before they were the SDGs, the Millennium Development Goals, but we've been doing um, the type of work, especially um, that uh, Tim just talked about um, for a very long time, starting uh, probably at least 20 years ago in um, Angola and Nigeria, doing partnership initiatives that bring in government, other corporations, local um, development organizations, uh, to address some of the, the challenges in those regions. From all of what we've learned, we've brought those now to the US. Um, as you can imagine, as an energy company, we work in mostly rural areas. Um, so um, talked a lot about declining rural, rural areas, but in the um, energy sector, it's a growing rural area. So how do we um, address the needs that, that come along with rapid growth and lack of infrastructure and, and to the point that it's not just housing and roads, which in this, in some of the cases it is, but education and local opportunities and all of the things that come along with that. So I think what, what Chevron has found is that um, it gives a set of, of initiatives, a set of, of things to point to that um, everybody can rally around. Um, and we think of it in a holistic type nature, um, food and health, education, economic development, it's all completely linked. So while they're um, separate, 17 separate goals, we think about them as one big um, way to increase um, access to education, economic development, health, um, as I mentioned. And we um, are, in, as, as, as mentioned over 20 years, are in it for the long term. Um, we view all of these investments multi-year, um, it takes, change doesn't happen over, overnight, as we all know, um, but it gives us a place to start and it gives us um, an, the ability to, to work with other companies, to work with economic development, nonprofits, to address some of these bigger issues, and, and nobody can say that these are not the right things to be focused on. So I think that's how we view it, and that's why we've really kind of jumped in on, on some of these efforts. Jan, you, you are involved with a number of rural development issues, mm -hmm. programs here in the United States. Tell us about some of them. Yep, so um, two that come to mind is one is in rural Pennsylvania and the, the economy there uh, has, has completely changed jobs and um, 
there was a need to, to retrain a lot of workers and really reshape the way that they were thinking about jobs. So we, uh, and, and I, I didn't mention previously, but we look at data to inform our decisions that we're gonna make. So um, in 2014, we um, responded to some data that came out about education and um, job opportunities in that Appalachia region and um, started training programs and things to, re to really retrain or in some cases to inform high school students about what the new economy was like and what the new jobs were available. Um, that's been ongoing uh, for the past five years. We're just starting to get some, some data from that. Um, uh, and then most recently, just launched in January, is in the Permian Strategic Partnership in the Permian um, Basin region, which is uh, West Texas, uh, New Mexico region. Um, it's a huge oil uh, boom area, or I should say energy boom area, and um, they don't have the infrastructure. They, they, they're used to the cyclical nature of the industry, the boom and bust. Um, so the infrastructure, the basic infrastructure, the roads, housing, um, even capacity at schools is not there to support the influx of workers. Um, so that's caused people to not want to relocate to that region, which has then obviously caused a, it's, it's that, so vicious a vicious circle. So they have that, the transient workers that come in and then they take their money back to their, um, their own region. So they're really trying to create um, a sustainable, more sustainable infrastructure. So 18 companies got together. It's um, called the per Permian Strategic Partnership um, to say, we need to make some changes. And they focused on, on four, top, four topics, health, education, economic development, roads, I'm sorry, five, and housing. Um, uh, there's, no, there's a lack of housing, and the housing that's there is extremely expensive. The roads are, are not safe due to the, 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 the number of cars and trucks on the roads. Um, healthcare, there's, there's a lack of, of doctors and nurses. There's a lack of infrastructure. So it's not necessarily bringing more infrastructure, more doctors in, but how can we use innovation and technology to connect people virtually, um, remotely, to these. Some of these areas are extremely rural. They have a very small hospital that just can't keep up. Um, education, they don't have, um, they don't even have enough space for students. There was a, before school started last year, there was a, it, uh, an article that went viral about kids sitting on Home Depot buckets because they didn't have enough chairs. So it's looking at that, again, it took 18 companies coming together to say, hey, this is an issue, how do we solve it? They most recently, um, they have an advocacy arm just um, received 600 million additional in federal funding to improve roads. So this is, again, government has to play a role, um, industry has to play a role, the local um, community has to play a role, but it's leveraging to be sustainable, it has to leverage all of those sources so that um, this, th they don't wanna think of it as boom and bust anymore, they wanna think of it as a stable economy. Thanks a lot, thanks Janet. So Dan, it's great to see you. I, I met you when you were working for President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf in Liberia, uh, and then you and, and I think you were there during some some challenging times in Liberia, if I were if I recall correctly, very challenging times. during Ebola. Is I was going to say that I wanted you to say that, okay. right? So, but and then you've gone from from Liberia and you're now in Baltimore. I love Baltimore. I love crab cakes. I love Old Bay. I put Old Bay on my Old Bay. As there's a t-shirt says, I put Old Bay on my Old Bay. I really, Baltimore is really good to me. And so I have nothing, I actually like Baltimore very much and have a special place in my heart. So I'm really glad you're there. So talk about, 
you've been working with national governments on another continent, and now you're working for a city government. And we were talking earlier, there's some similarities to some of the, there's some, there's some things that rhyme, and there's some things that are very different. Yeah, and I'll, and I'll maybe respond to it thinking about sort of the, the SDG context. And do you put Old Bay on your Old Bay? <laughs> I, I, well, my big discovery when I moved to Baltimore was Old Bay, like chicken wings. That is yeah, it's like, good. that's good. highly recommended. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, a couple, couple like reflections about, um, you know, SDGs and working for you know, a national government in Africa and then now in, in a city government here in, in, in the U.S. Um, so first of all, I think, in, you know, interestingly, a you know, the government of Liberia, and I was there pre-SDG, so sort of MDGs were the, were, you know, the talk at the time. You know, the Liberian government was highly fluent in that, in that language, right? They, they, you know, the, the donors, you know, the international community and donors are so important to the way the government, you know, is able to finance what it does that it, it sort of is always in kind of lockstep, at least in terms of thinking about its planning processes in, in, in that way. And interestingly, there's all kinds of ways that that plays out. For example, the fact that you have to do a multi-year poverty reduction strategy, which is not something that, um, uh, you know, a city of Baltimore, you know, and, and most cities, you know, would, would put out. So I think there's ways in which, for better or for worse, the pressures of, uh, you know, an African government like Liberia working with the international community makes it just a more natural fit to kind of align to the sort of SDG process and demands in a way that I think is quite helpful. I think that I think that's useful. In in Baltimore, uh, we were selected as one of the pilot cities for in the U.S. to begin thinking about what do the SDGs mean for a, a U.S. city like Baltimore. Uh, that led to a process to basically do a scan to see which of the uh, I can't remember how many indicators there are in total, but of those 179 indicators, I think it is. 69, excuse me. Uh, how many of those, you know... And Don't ask me which ones they are, but there are a lot of them. I just What's number 43? Don't, you're killing me. It's 169 of them, but it's a lot. Um, uh, you know, so basically sort of a, a mapping exercise that, that led to basically identifying, I think it was 56 indicators across all of the SDG goals that, that apply to Baltimore. But, so I think that was a great, a great start, and I think that's probably farther along than some cities um, have likely gotten in terms of basically defining what, what the sustainable development goals mean, mean for their city. So I think that's, that's a start, but I, I do think there's a ways to go in terms of, you know, be, be, basically, you know, integrating it with wider set of plans that, that the city rolls out. And again, as I was saying earlier, there isn't a singular planning process in the same way or a kind of pressure point like, you know, the, the role of the donors, frankly, in, in, in a Liberia that, that will kind of force that to happen. There's a lot of separate um, 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 sectors and, 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 uh, uh, and agencies that are, to some extent, developing plans. Doesn't mean we're not coordinated across those, those agencies, but, but again, some of those things are happening simultaneously and in parallel and not necessarily using the language of the SDGs. So I think that's a, that's a question mark for us. Um, you know, so what, so what are, you know, so then, so then you get to like, what are the priorities? And that, that comes down to, you know, what our, what our current mayor has, has defined as, you know, the critical and most pressing issues for, for the city. I mean, they would fit into the SDGs. I mean, just for what, what he, what he talks about most are public safety, um, city cleanliness, 
uh, and empowering youth, and I could say more about what, the, what those mean, but those are the things he talks about as sort of the city priorities, and that's, you know, I think mostly based on kind of urgency rather than a sort of five-year SDG plan or a 10-year SDG kind of horizon thinking about what we, what we necessarily need. Can you talk about, um, when you talk about the issues around youth, what is, how, does, how does your mayor think about that? Yeah, and this, that's a, I was hoping you wouldn't ask me about that one. Not, not just because it's, it's the most kind of, you know, multi-dimensional one. So I, I think... It is multi-dimensional. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of... So I think we've... I think we're still answering the question to some extent is, 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 one, is one answer. Um, there is a new office that's been created to basically map out the strategy specifically related to youth opportunity. That includes education, so-called you know, enrichment activities, which you know, sit around education, and then I think also job opportunities for youth. And then there's a whole other dimension in terms of juvenile justice and youth engagement with the, the justice system, which sits outside that office, which is a tricky sort of issue that we also need to think a lot about and, and have challenges about. So the, the mayor's agenda, I think, needs to think about, is thinking about both of those, both of those things. And we're actually in the process of kind of shaping indicators and measures that we're gonna to use to kind of track progress on both of those fronts. I'm just thinking about, you, you've worked with, you know, an unbelievably charismatic leader like Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, and now you're working for, a, a, you know, a, someone who's really taken on a really enormous task in Baltimore. Uh, you know, I, I, my default, having served in government, is, uh, is that you need, you need strong government leaders to do, you know, to make change happen. That, I do believe you do need, you know, government leadership matters and you need a functioning government. But could you talk in both contexts, are there champions, Sarah Lawrence talked about, that there's champions in other sectors, whether it could be in Baltimore, it could be a regional development office, it could be an NGO leader. Um, I can think of, you know, my friend Maggie Gaines is somebody who is a social leader in, in Baltimore. Uh, you know, there could be certain business leaders. Doug Becker yeah. is somebody in Baltimore that comes to mind, or the, 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 the CEO of Under Armour is a big proponent of Baltimore. So talk a little bit about some of the champions that, that come across your radar screen now in Baltimore and talk that are non-government, and talk about some of the champions you saw when you were in Liberia that were not aid agency champions, right, yeah. but who are some non and non-government champions in the Liberian context? Just just talk a little bit about what what they who who are they and what role do they play? Yeah, I mean that's I, I think both you know this is a high level comment. I think both a Liberia and a Baltimore happen to have very like robust and active civil societies that are very much. Uh, and at the same time, I would argue that, you know, for a big agenda and, you know, a big progress towards any individual SDG goal, you couldn't do it without government leadership. I think in a Liberia, when I think about, again, a very active and, again, multidimensional civil society, I, you know, you, you think about someone like Lema Bowie, who was led this, um, uh, led this women's empowerment organization that I, you know, played a pretty significant role in bringing down Charles Taylor. Um, you know, at, at the end of, 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 of his, his being yeah, pre president. So, you know, I, I think there is a powerful um, role and, and sort of check on government that, that civil society can play. There's lots of other roles they can play, but that's just an example that, you know, in a, in a Liberia plays out. I mean, Baltimore has, I would say, an equally vibrant and um, important civil society that plays, a, a, I think, a really you know, in, important check on, on, on government as well. I mean, in, in Baltimore, we've had 
um, lots of issues with with our police department um, that 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 you know some of you may may be aware of. And again, that's that's something that you know civil society community organizations have played a big role in raising you know you know raising the attention around and and pushing for greater reform. So uh, I, I think in both there's different ways that you're kind of forcing government to make important changes. In the first case, uh, actually bring down a president. But um, you know here in Baltimore, I think you know, pushing us, pushing us in government to, to make hard changes that maybe we otherwise might be a little too slow to, to move on. Good. There's a lot of smart folks in this audience I'd love to hear from, and then give us a chance to engage with my, my friends on the panel. So I'd love to hear from Tony Pippa, who's the, one of the, is at fault for inventing the SDGs. This is your fault, Tony. I want to hear from you. I want to hear from my friend Larry Garber, who's here. I also love to hear from Judith Hermanson, who's all things urban and cities. I'm really glad you're here. So I'd like to hear from you three to help us get started. So Tony, where's, who's got the microphone? Okay, give it to my friend Tony Pippa. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for including me in the conversation. And, and thanks to all of you for your thoughts and, um, and your realities, actually, about, about how this may or may not apply. And I was just struck by, by Dan's comment um, about what's going on in a mayor's office, for example, in a, in a big city in, in the US. And I do want to just pose the question and push back about a bit and say, look, wouldn't call it the SDGs, don't call it the SDGs. But, you know, multi-year thinking that looks at a, a set of interconnected issues and problems and putting out an actual goal and benchmark around that. So let's take youth empowerment or something along those lines. What does it look like? I don't know what your numbers are at all. I'll just pick something out of the air. A 50% reduction in juvenile justice over, you know, a five, because these are multi-year problems, right? And I get the fact that, that um, government offices are focused on their particular thing and trying to make, you know, some, uh, some progress on their particular thing, but looking at it in a more global sense, and I don't mean global out there, but I just mean in a more holistic sense, setting some real, honest, publicly declared benchmarks and measuring to it, wouldn't that provide a lot of value? And by the way, they might align to the SDGs and can use the common language and, and involve what, as Janet was saying, you know, the corporate community and other partners who have some fluency in it and are looking for it as a rallying point. So it'd be just a great to hear about that and, and comment on it. I think, thanks, fair enough. Larry Garber. Thanks, Dan, and uh, very uh, instructive presentations. I guess I'd like to hear a little bit more uh, from each of your perspectives about both the trade-offs involved. I mean, we're, we're talking as if everything is doable, uh, and you can just, you know, have these goals and, you know, set them, and uh, then the resources are, are going to follow. But that's not always the case. You're trading off, you know, various things on a daily basis. You know, and how that plays out when you're talking about uh, particularly some of the critical issues uh, that we're dealing with with respect to infrastructure, with respect to uh, some of the challenges uh, in, our, in, our, uh, in our cities in particular. And the second thing that I didn't hear uh, at all come up is the politics. I mean, again, in a, in a politic-free world, you can do the type of you know, global planning that, that Tony was referencing and, and that some of the panel were referencing. Uh, but we live in a politic, a political world, 
um, where it's often hard to do the long-term planning because people are looking to be, guess what, reelected after two years or four years. And so there are all kinds of pressures that are put on, on folks to make decisions that are not necessarily the optimal uh, tenure decisions, but are, are decisions that are going to help them in the short term. And so how does that impact on some of the types of work that you're trying to do, you know, which obviously, you know, I think is great, but, but in a practical sense has to, has to engage with the, the realities of, of our uh, democratic political system. Thank you. Um, it seems to me that we're talking uh, about how useful, can I put it that way, that the SDGs are, and today specifically SDG 11. We haven't really noted what SDG 11 is trying to accomplish, which is to make cities safe, sustainable, resilient, and inclusive. And so I want to link that to comments that have been made about SDGs providing sort of a platform or place around which um, cities can bring their various constituencies together to rally or maybe even within the city government itself. Uh, and it seems to me, um, first of all, a question, do you believe that that, that is the case? And if so, uh, and if so how, how can that, how can that happen? And each of these elements, of course, have cross-cutting things, and so an integrated approach within, within cities to, to achieve those goals. Related to that, well, I actually also say, at one event that IHC Global held, we had um, the chief planning officer from a city that I will not name here, because I don't want to put anyone on the spot, who got all excited about what we're talking about, and the various members in the audience about the SDGs, he says, oh my God, we're doing all that. We're doing, I'm just gonna go back and reframe it. And so, and he thought that that would be, would be useful. So that's the question behind that. And also, are there different things that can be done, such as the use of technology, which divides people, but at least at IHC Global, we have an initiative called Smart City, Just City, where technology can drive the inclusion, at least that's the vision, the vision of it. So are there ways that that also, the cross-cutting issues, can bring the various elements of uh, achieving the, at least SDG 11 together? Thank you. Thank you. Sarah, let me start with you. Which question should I start with? Any. <laughs> um, I'll start with the first point about the multi-year plans. Um, you know, as I was mentioning in the, the lunch earlier, one of the things I've observed is um, I do think that there's really power in this. And as we've seen this in countries like Thailand, Kenya, uh, Malaysia, um, you know, even if you don't have the resources to see the plan all the way through, the fact that it's out there and the goals are shared and transparent and you know where that target is, and it's where we don't see a lot of that happening because of the, uh, well, a whole host of reasons in the U.S. and seeing a lot less of that. Um, and so just agreeing that if, if we could get back to, you asked the earlier question, just the power of setting a vision. Uh, I don't think it has to be very controversial, but it does have to be um, clear enough and distinct enough that you can reach it and have those metrics. I just, uh, what a, I think that would be just tremendous to be able to get there. Um, it's, um, well, I'll, I'll stop with that. 
Um, in terms of the trade-offs, um, yes, what that's the big, that's out there, that's the big question. And I think, um, I think we have to have honest, not just honest conversations, but start deploying resources in an honest way to make sure that we're not trying to be all things to all people and assuming that our economy is the way it was 40 years ago or 50 years ago. Um, that doesn't make it easy. Um, I do think, um, I think from a planning perspective, going back to rethinking, refreshing a hub and spoke model in terms of just place-based planning, looking at how we're planning for density in our cities and picking the spokes, I hate to say picking, so, um, working with the assets around sort of mid-sized cities or towns that, that are growing, and then how to ensure we create access, um, not just from the hub to the spokes, but then also around rural areas. So just digital infrastructure. As we were talking before, we've done work before in the Appalachian region. Um, I just don't think that's part of our conversation here in the US um, at all, just assuming we have that infrastructure in place for all people to access the internet equally, and it's speeds that are useful that we can learn and have healthcare and et cetera. Um, in terms of politics, you know, but you first asked that question and I've thought, my goodness, I don't know. Um, it's pretty difficult. I've worked in some recent places in the past just few weeks where things have gotten shut down um, immediately. Things that are just uh, not even very political in terms of growing an innovation economy uh, because of politics. Uh, what I hope is, and I go back to the history of our region and research, uh, the Research Triangle region that was the second poorest 60 years ago, Government, it was gets back to ties into leadership too. It's not just one leader, right? It's not just government or it's not just the nonprofit sector. But how if you if there's a sense of urgency, and again seeing this in many places that we work, if there's a common sense of urgency uh, in our region, government came together with the universities and with the corporate sector, seeing massive brain drain in North Carolina, and then saying, How do we come together and create a 50-year strategy? And now we are a very successful hub, so I try not to give up on um, politics and the belief that uh, if there is that common sense of urgency that these different sectors do want to come together and invest in the greater good. Um, I'll stop there. I know we have more questions, but make sure we've got space for others to chime in. For 15, 20 years, I was on the board of directors and for a good chunk of that time, uh, vice chair of an international NGO called ACDI Volca. Yeah. Uh, and one of my frustrations, because we, I thought we did great work uh, in, in uh, Central America, Northern Africa, um, Southeast Asia, uh, is, is these were time-limited projects. And I, and I always felt like we're there for a couple of years because that's as much money as USAID will give us for that, pro and, and, then, and then what? Um, and, and so I, I agree with this business about you know, a longer-term strategy, a longer-term commitment if you really want um, change and progress to be uh, locked in, institutionalized. Um, so uh, at our foundation and uh, our counterpart foundations in Minnesota, we all have multi-year plans. Uh, and we're, we're in the middle of a six-year um, strategic plan right now. But I'll say the previous six years, uh, we're not, our goals and objectives were not appreciably different. Uh, we're adaptable and, and we change as circumstances change. Uh, we're heavily involved in early childhood as one example because uh, 
getting kids ready for kindergarten on, is, is an, an indicator of long-term success. So we, we invest there because every, every dime that you can invest is, is going to make a, an impact. Um, the needs there are that great. Um, but there's a child care shortage challenge now emerging in Minnesota, uh, partly because so much of the child care is being done by in-home providers, and many of them started 30 years ago, and new people aren't coming in, and other people are retiring. So, so we've adapted. So now we are piloting programs on the child care shortage issue because it's a new need in the child care area. So we're staying committed over a long term to the child care issue, but, but the way we deliver and work on that uh, varies from time to time. Uh, and and uh, to, to the point about politics, um, in the work we do, um, community and economic development work, early childhood being a piece of that, uh, it's, it's always a collaborative effort in, in which uh, government entities within our region in that given community may or may not be at the table. Um, often they are, but because these are broad-based collaboratives, if all of a sudden there's a change in the, the mayorship in, in, in a particular town, it doesn't change the work we're doing in that town because the work is being done with a broad-based coalition of organizations within that community. So that's where you get the stability uh, that, that uh, insulates you from the politics of the day. So I'll, I'll talk Microphone. about <coughs> oh, sorry about that. Um, the, the comment and the question about um, the SDGs and being attainable and then kind of the trade-offs. And I would say, um, uh, yes, we're all sitting up here saying things are, things are, uh, these are a roadmap and this and that, but are they attainable? And I think um, it, it, it depends on what um, your definition of attainable is um, and, and for who. So. Um, I think that there's much work to be done, and I think, as, as everybody here has mentioned, it's, it's a collaborative approach. But what I think is that at least it's, it's something, it's a framework, it's something to, to, to build up upon, it's a plan. Um, and then trade-offs involved. It, it, um, one of the things that we've talked about with this Permian Strategic Plan, um, because again, this is a, a, a significant amount of companies coming together from a, a relatively, it's it's, land-wise, it's a vast region, but a relatively small region in terms of companies. And, and it brings to mind, um, they're focusing on five issues. And, and we all know that every community has a lot more than five issues. So what trade-offs are they facing um, in terms of funding? Because there's a lot of philanthropic funding that's, that's go, this, this initiative is, most, it's mostly corporations and, and their dollars, but again, partnering with government. But one of the, um, uh, guidelines that the companies agreed to was that the funding that they would do for the arts or for uh, food or for anything was to not be displaced uh, by this funding. They still had to continue with their, um, but since it's new, that remains to be seen and what, you know, what is going to be the trade-offs from, from that initiative. I, I would like to think that the greater region is going to be enhanced by it, but what about um, people that, that suffer or don't um, things, services, other services aren't supported. So um, trade-offs is a, is, is a big thing that we think about and how, um, how to raise the, the entire community, um, which is so very difficult. So um, 
I think there is no no perfect answer, and even in the affordable housing piece, they're 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 struggling with. Um, there's a lack of housing, generally. So how can we even address thinking of affordability? So um, it, it's it's an interesting uh, dynamic that that um, uh, again is just starting. So uh, once some 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 data some time goes by, I think we'll have a, a better. Um, indicator of how it's going because this is again I think a really large effort in a in a in a single community that'll be a an an interesting um, case study in a few years okay Dan um, yeah so just I mean I didn't mean to imply I don't believe in multi-year planning at the city level I think it's incredibly important and there are there are those plans that that exist a police department just developed a five-year Violence reduction strategy. So th that is that is happening, and and obviously I you know so that's it wasn't to say that that's not incredibly important and the way we should uh, we should be going to tie it to politics. The reality you know political transition is a reality in in at least my my city government. We've we've just gone through one we didn't expect. We have one we are expecting with a, a mayoral uh, uh, election coming up next year. Um, that's the reality, but it can also be an opportunity. I mean, maybe so what I'm you know, to be honest, this this being on this panel has prompted me to think about SDGs in a way that day to day in City Hall is just not something that's been on my radar. So I'm trying to think a bit like creatively in terms of how might we use a political moment like a new um, the start of a new administration to kind of mobilize around this, or maybe a particular sector, uh, a particular uh, director of an agency that's looking to, um, you know, craft a new strategy, and how do we bring together, and might that person see the potential for partnerships with Chevron or others that, that you know, by connecting themselves with the SDGs might, you know, might, might make sense. So I'm, I'm just, I, I think politics and sort of, you know, other similar dynamics can be super helpful in thinking about how we, is in a city like Baltimore, move move this forward. Because right now, there's not a huge amount of dialogue about it. I think how do we how do we move towards that? Okay, we've we've run out of time, sadly. I, I want to uh, ask you all to join me in thanking the panel. I hope you'll have a chance to say hello to the panelists at, at the end of this. Please join me in thanking the panel. Thank you.